0: It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at wrtfm.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference.
1: Six, foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency, radio modulation. The big sound from
0: underground. Hello, everybody, and welcome to A Public Affair. It's Wednesday, so that means you've got me. I'm your host today, Carousel Baird. And I want to remind you, you are listening to A Public Affair on volunteer-powered, listener-sponsored community radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Well. Our fabulous staff here has been thinking about today's show for a while. Um, a huge, huge thanks to Jade, our producer, for helping to put this together. I've been wanting to talk about free speech uh, and what's happening on college campuses across the country Um on our show for quite a while. I hope that everyone sort of remembers the past several months a lot has happened regarding free speech on college campuses um, in the aftermath of the October 7th attacks from Hamas on Israel and protests of the attacks and Israel's response to the attacks uh, and sort of the historical issue of the Palestinian people and the Israeli people and all of that sort of coming together has led to a lot of college protests protests on college campuses and there has been um pushback of how that how some of those protests have have occurred um people have been scared there has been anti-semitic uh issues there have been anti-islamic islamophobic issues and uh speech and content and activity and there was a hearing At the united states congress on this and i think everyone remembers what happened from that that was just god i think just a month ago the start of december uh and three uh university leaders all women by the way were asked if calling for genocide of jews violates their school rules or code of conduct and the answers were it depends right it depends on the context it can be complicated and there was a huge pushback because of that, and two of those professors, uh, I'm sorry, two of those um, leaders, not professors, but chancellors of their schools, were actually have subsequently been terminated. Uh, so, here to sort of break all of that down and a little bit more of what's going on regarding free speech, we have two great guests joining us today. Um, first, we have Nico Perino. He's the executive vice president of FIRE, and FIRE is the foundation for individual rights and expression. Hello, Nico.
1: Hey, thanks. Happy to be here.
0: Thank you for joining us. And then Dylan White is also here. He's an attorney, constitutional law professor, and former scholar with the Cilia Center for Study of Media Ethics and Law, where his work focused primarily on First Amendment issues. Hello, Dylan. Hey, how are you? Great. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have both of you. So can we just sort of start big picture and... Not that not that we can say that this and it's this question in itself can be a whole hour conversation, but can we get a sort of big picture reminder of what is protected under the First Amendment when we say you have free speech, you can't say fire in a crowded building. We're gonna get to that about why, but in general you can call for the killing of someone or the, the genocide. You, you can say things that are hateful and, and painful to some people that are listening. Is that sort of true? Nico, you want to start?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I can start. out. I, I, I guess I'll start with the fire in a crowded theater analogy, which is often used as a justification to censor speech. You know, they say this speech is akin to shouting fire in a crowded theater, but often what's forgotten there is the falsely part. Falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater and likely to cause a panic, right? So, if there is, in fact, a, a fire in a theater, you'd probably be uh, you smart. Say to actually fire. Yeah. So, but that, that speaks to one exception to the First Amendment, right? Which is incitement to imminent lawless action. Uh, and it's likely to cause such lawless action. There are other exceptions to the First Amendment, such as true threats, fraud, perjury. But when we're talking about exceptions to the First Amendment, it is always going to be a fact intensive analysis when it gets before a court. And I think that's what the college presidents were speaking to in early December, that context, that facts matter. Now, the problem is when you're the president of a college or university, you're kind of in a political position. And I think they tripped themselves up because as one commentator put it, they spoke from the heart, or they spoke from the thesaurus, not from the heart. Um, But context does matter. Think about the context of that hearing. They were previous to that question talking about Chance that they are being heard on campus, like from the river to the sea, Palestine mm-hmm. will be free and intifada, right? These are often political slogans, political chants that on their own do not, meet, do not meet a pattern of discriminatory harassment that would justify censorship, right? Um, but a blanket kind of abstract exception to the First Amendment for calls for genocide that fall short of that pattern of discriminatory harassment, just think about the precedent that would set, right? Um, some people say Israel's invasion of Gaza is an act of genocide. Some people say um, that uh, abortion, if you're a pro-lifer, is genocide against the unborn. Um, many people say that you know what Gaza or the Hamas is calling for, or from the river to the sea, is is a call for genocide. Many people disagree with that, so it needs to be tethered to some legal standard or to the facts on the ground in order to actually understand whether it falls into an unprotected category. And I think that's what the presidents were trying to say during that hearing. Did it so in a a little bit of a ham-fisted way, and also did so in front of a huge audience in a political environment. Mm -hmm. Um, But in short, their answer was kind of correct, as much as people don't want to hear that.
0: Thank you, Nico. Dylan, build on that. Yes, please.
2: For sure. I I actually think that the the fire in a credit theater is is an appropriate metaphor because it's 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 a little bit of a misnomer, right? In terms of in terms of whether that's actionable or not. I mean, t- typically it's not, right? That's that's a, uh, a misnomer that dates back to the early 1900s about that that being illegal, right? So to Nico's point, you know, about the the context specific uh, argument is if I'm in a, a crowded theater and I yell fire and there's actually a fire on screen, for instance, in the film, that's not actionable at all. Right. It's not necessarily per se illegal just just to say that, right? There has to be some other thing that's happening as a result of it. Um, now just to to kind of back up a little bit in terms of you know what we're talking about for the First Amendment, because I, I think it's something, and Nico, I'm sure you see this all the time, that's misunderstood a lot, is that you know, we're really talking about the, the right of people to articulate opinions, ideas without interference or retaliation from the government. And that is a really important point both in terms of the general aspects of the first amendment but also in terms of you know we get in this conversation about private universities right we're not talking about your ability to say or not say something uh with with private organizations private employers example i always give you know is if is if you work at a target and you wear a shirt to work that says i love walmart or i hate target mm-hmm. it's not like you can say this is my free speech right to be able to say these things, right? Because Target is a private employer. So is Walmart, right? They can punish you. They can fire you because there's probably something in the code of conduct for that job that says you have to wear a uniform.
0: You can't you disparage can- the organization, right?
2: Right. Yeah, and that, and that becomes, you know, especially important as we dive into the conversation here on schools too. But always being able to identify if there is a government actor that is involved in their potential retaliation or interference.
1: And Carousel, can I just build on that quickly? Because uh, Dylan's point is is an important one, because we're talking about three presidents of private universities who are not bound by the First Amendment. They are not government institutions. Um, But one of the things that you see at private universities often is that they proactively commit themselves to free speech and academic principles, academic freedom principles, excuse me, in part because that's how you... recruit the best faculty and in part because the missions of colleges and universities are often the search for truth the dissemination the preservation and the creation of knowledge in fact harvard's motto is veritas truth right and it's it's believed and i think correctly so that free inquiry free speech and academic freedom are required for that ser- search for truth and actually liz mcgill who is the president of university of pennsylvania who res- resigned a few days after the hearing she did a video like the day the next day that almost kind of looked like a hostage video. She was very (laughs) disheveled. You could tell she was under a lot of pressure. And, and she said, you know, for decades, and I'm quoting her here under multiple Penn presidents and consistent with most universities, Penn's policies have been guided by the constitution and the law. Mm -hmm. And then as a result of this hearing, she said, now we're going to take a full look at our policies. And that process is going to start immediately, presumably to untether uh, the school's policies from the law And from the Constitution, those sort of First Amendment free speech principles that that guided it up until that point.
0: Well, I I mean, I appreciate that because that sort of sets us up for the complexity of all of this. And I I want to back up, though, just a little to make it clear of especially like Dylan made a really good point about, you know, you can you can say or actually, Nico, I think you were saying this about, you know, is. What if someone says abortion is genocide? What if someone says what Gaza is doing is genocide? What Israel is doing is genocide? To be able to say that out loud, that sentence in and of itself should be protected speech. And if it, if we're at a private university that says they're following the protections of the First Amendment, that should be protected speech. But at what point could it cross over to harassment that it's not just, that sentence by itself, but it creates this sense of fear. I can say personally, I'm I'm Jewish, and from the river to the sea, I have had multiple conversations with people about how does that sentence make me feel, and that's great. I'm, I'm allowed to talk about how that sentence make me feel because it's a complicated sentence, but I don't think anyone can't say that sentence i'm just trying to say gee that sentence scares me a little that sentence makes me feel uncomfortable and i think that's what free speech does so i'm just trying to sort of get when does it cross the line into something more than just a sentence
2: yeah you you really kind of nailed on the head in terms of you know how how you felt in those conversations really speaks to this notion of whether the the harm, and I'll get into why that matters in a second here, but whether the harm is objective or subjective, right? So you know, as, as Nico said, it's this kind of weird standard where like, yes, we're talking about the First Amendment and all this stuff, but we're also not talking about the First Amendment because it's a private university. However, hmm. as Nico said, you know, for, for some reason, we have sort of had this tradition of whenever private institutions have voluntarily declared that they're going to abide by free speech protections, then they're usually held to that promise, right? So, you know, even by the most strict standards, though, those universities have, have sort of always been given two exceptions, you know, for, for when speech goes too far. And that the first one is, is the time-place manner, right? So, you know, no matter what, as long as it's content neutral, then schools are generally allowed to regulate speech based on time place manner easiest example possible being a school is perfectly within their rights to say you are not allowed to protest in the library right because the library is a space that's reserved for you know studying and quiet time right um and then the other one being this this notion that was really spoken to quite largely in the hearings and that is it depends on the context, right? So considered in the overall context, does the speech imminently cause or threaten harm? Um, now, what's, what's kind of an odd little subset of this, because there's multiple, is that it usually has to be an imminent harm against a specific person, right, or, or a group. It can't just be like in general harm. So, you know, what's odd about this, and Carousel, you mentioned this, is when we talk about whether someone felt uh, like they were in danger, it's it's always going to be an objective test meaning this weird thing in the law that we call the reasonable person standard right would a reasonable person feel like they were they were under uh, under threat of harm to which you say what's a reasonable person and you say i have no idea right yeah. that's that's all going to be context and fact dependent on on the case but you know it's not necessarily just I felt threatened or, or I, I didn't like what was being said. A, a court is going to look at whether it's objective for that person to have felt that way.
1: Yeah. And, and to kind of build on that a little bit, even at private colleges, they're bound by some requirements as contingent on receiving federal funding. So for example, the civil rights act of 1964, you often hear about title nine of that, which, uh, prevents sex discrimination in the higher education context. But you know, there, there's a big discussion right now around title six. Uh, which uh, mandates that schools essentially don't allow for a hostile environment or discriminatory harassment as applied to race, color, and national origin. Now, the interesting thing, right, if you're talking about allegedly anti-Semitic speech and and the context for when that can be punishable or not, is that um, you know n- there's no there's no application to religion here. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the the federal government has done so, sort of a workaround for um, shared ethnicity, perhaps, um, so they, that. It, does apply um, to to Jewish students, um, but that's actually something that Congress might want to consider if it's if it's trying to address this sort of speech contingent on uh, um, on and its federal funding at these schools.
2: And you know, also, I, I think when we kind of look at the complexity of the situation that you had talked about, Carousel, both of of the the presidents in uh, in question here, both both Claudine and Liz, they weren't fired. Right? they both resigned mm. and the reason why that's important is because you know when you look at Liz for instance um she felt enormous pressure to resign because of all of the donors and prestigious alumni that threatened to pull their funding yeah right and that that is where you say you know yes like there was not a governmental actor that was uh you know causing the punishment although you could certainly make the case that there's something going on there with the hearings and we'll get into that but in terms of the actual reasons why she resigned it was the, the pressure from both the university and from outside sources if a president can't do their job if people say we're not going to fund the university right if it's some of the, the the most uh you know exuberant donors in the history of the school say if she stays we're not going to donate that that kind of creates a problem for both the school and the president.
1: Yeah, the president obviously has, of any university, has different responsibilities than the faculty yes. members. And this might speak to the Joe Goad uw lacrosse mm-hmm. situation that I'm sure your listeners are all familiar yes. with and that we might get into uh, later in this conversation. But Liz McGill and Claudine Gay are both faculty members at uh, University of Pennsylvania and Harvard as well. And so when we're talking about, let's say they were fired, there would be distinction and different kind of legal recourses private schools, so we're talking about con- contractual rights, not uh, First Amendment rights, there would be different recourses uh, for their roles as president and then as tenured faculty members uh, of the colleges.
0: Well, yeah, it's, it's,
1: go, yeah, ahead. go ahead, Dylan. Uh, it's, it's, it's very
2: difficult to to be able to uh, revoke tenure, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's incredibly difficult. Um, you know, I, I think we sort of started this question by you asking about what, what even public universities can do. And, and Nico, you know, so full disclosure to all my First Amendment classes, I used to I used to use the fire organization constantly, right, because the work that y'all did to be able to carve out what the different policies at schools are uh, is, is really impressive. And one of the things I always found most interesting throughout all of it were this, this notions of free speech zones, right, which are pretty illegal, but a lot of universities still use them. Uh, and I think that that's one way that you can probably talk about uh, to address carousel's question of some of the things that schools are using that maybe people don't really know about uh and maybe don't really realize are
0: problematic well i mean i think that's a that's a good transition to here we are in madison wisconsin the university of wisconsin you know a public university at an institution that is vital to the to the everyday life of this city i mean i don't I never went to the University of Wisconsin. I've never attended a class there. And I know practically every building because I go to music concerts there and football games there. And I meet my friends for coffee there. And the bus that I ride goes right past it. And the days I drive my car, I drive right past it. And when I'm late to work, it's because I'm in UW traffic. I mean, so it's just fundamental. And I'm the anomaly of someone that didn't go to school here. Um, So can you help us understand the free speech rights then that students have on public universities. And I really appreciate the comment at the beginning too, about how the president, the university presidents, they might not have been incorrect. We might not have, they might not have said it right. And that, that in itself could be grounds for termination of you got to be a good communicator. Um, But what they were saying of the context matters that that's not wrong but i think america wanted it to be wrong
1: yeah which one do you want to nico you you (laughs) want to talk about
0: you have lots of thoughts on regulation yeah sure in i mean just
1: generally yeah. again it comes back to the mission of a college or university as a normative matter which is i think the search for truth right um and that requires a robust free speech environment where people can play devil's advocate where they can toss out ideas where they can um uh, learn the holes or the kind of the shortcomings of their different arguments through its kind of confrontation with error or with truth and so and and the courts the supreme court and, and other courts, lower courts have recognized this um, often in kind of very glowing language that said you know we're free speech to be eliminated on college campuses, our civilization would stagnate and die. Um, I'm, it's a rough quote but it's it's pretty close to what the Supreme Court uh, hmm. has has said. And we also just need to recognize that these are government institutions and uh, and that the sort of kind of pull of orthodoxy that could be set, if the government is allowed to just determine what can and can't be said, could be very, very, and most likely would be very, very chilling, especially if you're talking about a government that's prone to kind of authoritarian authoritarian tendencies. Um, so students have broad latitude to speak freely on campus, um, cabined, of course, by the time, place, and manner restrictions that Dylan was talking about, protesting in in libraries, blocking passageways. The use of violence, of course, is not protected, but the courts have generally found that to the extent there are open areas on campus, you can speak freely in them and that the so-called free speech zones that Dylan was alluding to before are generally unconstitutional. You don't see them as much on college campuses anymore, in part because fire has (laughs) filed many (laughs) lawsuits to strike them down. But, you know, an example of that was at Texas A&M University. They had what they called their free speech gazebo, where if... Essentially, every student at Texas A and M wanted to exercise their free speech rights. At the same time, we did the calculations; they would have need, needed to be crushed down to the density of uranium two um, hundred and thirty-eight. So, uh, you know, they're 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 kind of absurd. Um, but of course, there's also the question of of classroom speech, and faculty members generally have wide latitude to determine what you know the the kind of contours of discourse in those class in those classes, and sure. then faculty members have very wide latitude to be able to go wherever the research takes them to make arguments um, and to speak as citizens on matters, of, of public concern. In fact, the American Association of University Professors has said um, before in its 1964 report, I believe that, you know, faculty members' expression of opinion as a citizen cannot constitute grounds for dismissal unless it clearly demonstrates the faculty members' unfitness for his or her position. Extramural utterances rarely bear upon the faculty members' fitness for the position. Uh, there's a little bit more latitude for colleges and universities to kind of regulate this the speech of faculty members um, consistent with kind of best practices and norms in their fields and disciplines as in their capacities as experts in their fields. Um, But this, and again, this kind of speaks to the Joe Go situation, extramural speech rarely bears on a faculty member's fitness for the position. And so they have wide latitude. So that's just kind of a broad brushstroke of the the rights uh, as they apply to faculty members and students. And and Dylan might have more.
0: Yeah. And Dylan, can you sort of, um, uh, excuse me, add to that, but also help me understand then how do you know when your speech does lead to you know action I I mean how can you predict how can you predict that 10 people are listening that no people are listening that 50 people are listening what if you're online and you can't see the audience all of these things how do we how do you know it's gonna your speech is gonna cross the line until it's actually crossed the line
2: yeah and I you know I, I hate to sort of belabor the point with the same answer but like it is context dependent uh and i i I say that you know sort of tongue-in-cheek but at the same time um the reason why that's the case is is there's a reason why lawyers get hired and get paid right (laughs) and they do that because the answer to everything is not black or white right it's always going to be somewhere in the middle and it's a matter of being able to make an argument for one way or another um you know and i i think though that even to its to its truest extent Most uh, university faculty, administrators, et cetera, are gonna say that even with speech that crosses the line, they would prefer that the remedy for that not be to censor it, but rather the sort of like tried and true truism, if you will, for the First Amendment has always been, if there's speech you don't like, drown it out with speech you like more. Uh, And I think that that that's how a lot of schools have really operated with most of these issues for, you know, a century. Uh, the, the classic example, taking it out of the school context, but to use an example that was at the Supreme Court not too long ago uh, with the opinion written by um, Chief Justice Roberts dealt with the uh, Westboro Baptist Church right, okay. and their protests of uh, military funerals. Right? And the solution to that ended up you know, not being uh, to stop them from protesting, uh, but rather was this sort of cool community thing where uh, motorcycle gangs showed up to the funerals. To drown out the protesters that were outside and were protesting the protesters, so that they could peacefully have the funeral inside uh, inside the building, you know. And it's it's to your point about why um, the sort of hearing went the way that it did, and we can we can dive into this certainly in a little bit. But
3: yeah.
2: as I was as I was watching those hearings, I'm I'm sort of reminded of the thing we talk about a lot in classes, which is there's a difference between the law and business, and it felt as though they were very well prepared by a bunch of attorneys to give a very specific lawyer answer, and that was not what that committee and probably most of America wanted to hear. Uh, what was the lawyer answer of it depends. We get made fun of as lawyers all the time because our answer to literally everything is "it depends," right. no matter what.
0: I'm frustrated um, and, right now by you, and I'm a lawyer. Yeah.
2: Yeah, right. and that and that's you know that's that's something that we've sort of owned, and we understand that that people don't like that. So I I don't think, given the context of the hearings, that that was probably the best business approach. And those universities, when it comes down to it, are businesses.
0: I want to remind everyone you're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison, and we would love to have you join the conversation. What are your thoughts about free speech protections, what's happening on college campuses, and um, and what had happened to the professors and what's happening here in Wisconsin? We would love to have you join the conversation. You can give us a call at area code 608. extension 9. We have Mary Jo ready to answer your phone calls, and we've got Jay and Jade in the studio. Um, They can pass a message along to me, or you can join us live on the air. Whatever works best for you, we would love to have your thoughts. Area code 608-256-2001. So let's transition a little bit to the sort of politics of this because i i think that's part of it too and and sort of what happened after the um hearing before um congress can can we talk about how there's this level of you know the the questions were being led by congressional members who have a history a a public history of being frustrated with sort of the lack of free conservative speech on schools um republican leaders certainly in wisconsin and in the in uh u.s congress as well and perhaps across the country have been frustrated we'll speak just here in wisconsin they have been frustrated at uw wisconsin for they feel not enough welcoming uh, f- free speech of conservative values and conservative issues that are important to them and so it was sort of interesting to see the politics of this play out of people that were frustrated at universities sort of now being frustrated at universities for not shutting down conversation what were your thoughts on that nico you want to start
1: yeah i mean Anyone who does any free speech work is going to know that double standards for free speech are just kind of the standard, unfortunately. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, that's
0: helpful for, to know.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk, but, not... but I
0: don't want to hear what you have to say. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's the the great late civil libertarian Nat Hentoff titled his book "Free Speech for Me, but Not for Thee," and I think you see that on both sides of this, mm. right? Yes. Uh, as you mentioned, the in this case, Republican lawmakers who really went after the college presidents have championed free speech on campus because they see conservatives. Uh, in their opinion, being uh, predominantly censored on these campuses. Uh, I believe um, some of the members of Congress who were questioning them are members of the campus free speech caucus, in fact. Um, but then now they are kind of going after the college presidents for giving the free speech answer, despite it being from the thesaurus and not from the heart, which maybe the moment didn't call for. Uh, but it was the correct free speech answer, answer consistent with their policies, as Liz McGill had, had said. But I think the public was frustrated by the college and president's answers in part because of what they see as double standards, right? So mm-hmm. they're, they're sticking to the, to the law or to their policies because these are private universities and their answer about calls for Jewish genocide. Right. But you see on college campuses, you know, uh, asking someone where they're from is a racist microaggression. Uh, Harvard drove out Carol Hooven, who was a lecturer at the school because she wrote a book, testosterone, arguing that, um, Biological sex is real. MIT um, Dorian Abbott, who's a geophysicist from the University of Chicago, was set to speak. There was driven off because he has minority viewpoints on DEI initiatives on college campuses. At the University of Pennsylvania, they canceled a screening of this uh, documentary critical of Israel called "Israelism." Um, but at, you know, so they're doing all this censoring, and but. Then, when they're asked about calls for Jewish genocide, they're like free speech, free speech, free speech, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you could see how people would be frustrated and ask for double standards. But the 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 yes, the the solution isn't more double standards. It's free speech. It's free speech standards, not double standards. And so, um, you know, I think that's what dri- has driven a lot of this. And that's why when if you're a free speech advocate, if you care about free speech, you got to have that old Voltaire misascribed to Voltaire, in fact, a quote like, you know, I might disagree with what you say, but I'll defend to the death to your right to say it, because Americans are smart and they can see through hypocrisy.
0: But can they? I mean, Dylan, what are your thoughts of sort of um, the the congressional hearings?
2: Yeah, I mean, just to just to hammer home Negro's point a little bit more is uh, I think for a very long time, you know these universities have been seen as as a source of like cultural decay if you will Um, and I think that that has led to a lot of the different conversations and arguments that have happened about academia in general uh, and this difference between like blue-collar white-collar work and I think that if I'm just sort of talking as a as you know as an attorney and as a as a former college debater uh, you know I'll say like watching those hearings it, it, was, it was tough to answer some of those questions because yeah. of the way they were phrased, right? Like the example I always used in class was it's, it's as if someone asked me, you know, hey, Dylan, are you still a bad dad, right? Like I can't, I can't answer that with a yes or no because I would argue that I've never been a bad dad, right? But the way the question was phrased in the hearings was it's, it's yes or no. And that creates a very difficult uh, answer, especially if you've been consulting with lawyers, for yeah. the last few weeks and then and you're
0: told not room. told not to say yes or no. Yes. Right,
2: right. Right. Exactly.
0: So I want to Dylan, was it you that made the point of sort of now is this going to have a chilling impact that the, that the, or I'm, I'm blurring you because you're both saying great things. Maybe Nico was <laughs> you that was reading was from Nico, yeah. UW. Um, I'm sorry, not UW, U Penn's professor, uh, um, Chancellor, I'm getting it all wrong. Yeah, trying you, to rewrite the policies, you. right? You, yeah. pens Chancellor, uh, when she was speaking right before she resigned about maybe we do need to revisit our policy. So this is sort of creating this chilling impact, which is the opposite of free speech which is maybe what we're all calling for, but then we're not all calling for it. Nico, what's sort of the result from all of this that we think?
1: Yeah, yeah, we were really worried that night that Liz McGill had issued that statement where they were going to try and untether their policies from the law and constitutional standards because often what these Ivy League colleges do, others follow, for better or for worse right? Like, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons Harvard and Penn and MIT have captured so much attention in light of those hearings is not just the kind of back and forth, but the fact that they're Harvard and Penn and MIT, right? So if if Penn is moving away from academic freedom and free speech standards, other schools are likely to follow. And that's why we got out our statement on Liz McGill's uh, video late that night. We were like, we need to kind of head this off. So in every crisis is an opportunity. And and it'll be interesting to see in light of all of this conversation, what comes out of it. And it could go one way. It could become more speech codes, more censorship, greater chilling effect. It could be let's recommit to colleges and universities as institutions dedicated to uh, advancing and discovering truth Um, and the expansion of free speech policies. Let's say, okay, we've done all this double standard stuff in the past. We're not doing that anymore. Please forgive us for our wrongs in the past and recommit to free expression. But I think it's a little bit Early to tell. I can just say though that there is declining trust in colleges and universities across the country. Um, if you look at the Gallup polls, which they've run since 2015, you know it was only 9% of Americans that said they had very little confidence in higher education. Now it's up to 22% this last year, and so I think this mm-hmm. whole free speech controversy stuff is also a result of just broader decline in trust in not just higher education, but our institutions at large. And I think part of it is associated with the idea that people believe these institutions have become politicized. And so that's why I think colleges and universities in this and maybe a separate conversation shouldn't weigh in on social and political issues. Um, And they should be the host and sponsor of critics, but not critics themselves.
0: Well, and that's where sort of the politics gets so involved in this, because, right, if you, I mean, I can see arguments in multiple directions of if you erode the trust in these institutions right is that that will that will help give more power to people that don't go to higher education and yet that will also quash people seeking higher education and i can i can hear the arguments from my conservative republican friends i can hear the arguments from my liberal progressive democratic friends on both sides saying When you do this, it's actually intentional part of the plan to erode trust on one side or another. How does the politics play out in all this? Dylan, what are you thinking?
2: Yeah, I honestly don't don't really know um, how it plays out. But I I will say one of the things I was thinking about the same way that, that Nico brought up is. I, I think when that is sort of referenced of untethering ourselves from from the law or from tradition, I the first thing that comes to my mind is is probably the biggest you know myth in the First Amendment. And that's when I see people all the time talk about how hate speech is illegal. There is no such thing There's as
0: hate no speech. There's no hate speech. That's not a
2: thing. Okay. Right. So, hmm. you know, it's not, it's not a legal term in the U.S. And by and large, the, the Supreme Court has said that things that qualify as hate speech in other countries are perfectly legal here under the First Amendment. Um, and, you know, I think that when comments like that are made about sort of changing the way we do things, maybe your brain goes to a different place, Nico, but but mine goes to say, you know, I wonder if they're going to try to carve out a definition for hate speech.
1: Yeah. I mean, the they can't at public colleges and universities yep. uh, insofar as there's no hate speech exception to the First Amendment, although our surveys have found that most college students, most Americans, in fact,
0: they think um, they yeah.
1: think there is, right? It, it, yes. It's interesting. if you poll Americans, you get something like ninety percent or more who who think free speech is important or the most important right as Americans. But then you dig down deeper and try and figure out what they their conception of free speech is mm-hmm. and asked about hateful or offensive speech and that support for free speech plummets. But we I mean we can see how hate speech codes will play out on college campuses, right? Guy Benson, a conservative commentator, was set to speak over at Brown a few years ago, and there was a petition signed by thousands to get him banned because uh, he is conservative. He believes in free market principles. And that was accused of being white supremacist. Um, You know, we have a TPUSA chapter at Emerson College that hand out stickers critical of China that said China kind of such, which is like a slang term in Gen Z. It's like suspicious. Um, And the president of that college accused them of anti-Asian hate and bias, despite the fact that they were clearly criticizing the Chinese government, not Chinese students, in fact one third of the student group was fat it was, it was, uh, themselves, uh, Asian, including of, uh, Chinese descent. So, uh, you know, you open up this wide kind of exception to the first amendment for hate speech. It just yeah. becomes in the eye of the beholder
0: gets. And it's just, I mean, hearing you talk about this, Nico, just makes me remember fondly college. How <laughs> wonderful. I mean, there is something wonderful about being on a college campus and literally problem solving through this and literally you know talking with people and uh, you're surrounded by all these people that are thinking and and scaring each other and and trying to work together and and figuring it out it's actually so vital that we ensure these conversations and and that people make mistakes and get it right and get it wrong if we're not doing it on college campuses I don't know where else you will ever have that opportunity to be surrounded by people and institutions and questions and, you know, confidence of confidence of youth. Fantastic. And to, to figure it all out. My daughter is a high school senior and it just, just just makes me so mm-hmm. excited for all the conversations she's about to have. And sad at the thought that we won't let we might not have as robust a college system in America. Because of the chilling or fallout from what happened,
1: yeah. Yeah, rever- yeah go ahead, Dylan.
2: Oh, I, I was just going to add. You know, I, I while well, I certainly uh, understand that, I also, you know, even as an attorney that's a, that's a staunch First Amendment purist, I also understand why many Americans see certain things that happen on college campuses and and they feel weird about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I think it, what's odd about kind of the last few weeks is. How reticent a lot of people are to just say like, "Hey, genocide is wrong, right? Genocide is very, very bad." Um, and I, I think that I think that to a certain extent, you know, a, a lot of us have sort of become encapsulated in this this fear of taking any stance on something. Um, and I, I like I get why many Americans see something that they think historically would qualify as as hate speech under what they think is a definition of hate speech. And are trying to understand you know why certain college campuses allow it and why some don't
1: yeah carousel uh, you, your kind of uh, discussion there of the exciting aspects of going to college the debate and the discussion the devil's advocacy that happens the exploration of ideas the world of ideas is what reminds me of a very formative experience i had when i was uh, a senior in college uh, i believe it was 2011 2012 when this uh, evangelical pastor named douglas wilson came to campus and there was concern on campus because he had views on LGBT rights that were not uh, in agreement with most of the student body. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing about Douglas Wilson is that he used to travel the country debating religion with the late Christopher Hitchens. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners might be familiar with him, uh, a writer. And I got interested in the world of ideas because, in part because of my interest in religion in the wake of um, the 2001 terrorist attacks on on September 11th and following the debates that Christopher Hitchens had with Douglas Wilson. So when Douglas, when Christopher Hitchens died and then Douglas Wilson came to campus, I was like, this is my opportunity to be Christopher Hitchens and debate this guy on religion and LGBT rights. But no sooner had I arrived than my peers uh, at Indiana University started shouting down Douglas Wilson, uh, pulling fire alarms, banging on doors, preventing him from speaking. And there was this one line that he said uh, that has always resonated with me. I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right. I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right. It's this idea that if you're a scholar, you have uh, strong convictions loosely held, right? You believe things strongly. You, you, know, you always think you're right, but you know you, that you might not be right. And my peers that day had such strong convictions about their beliefs, so strong, in fact, that they had determined what everyone else should be allowed to hear on campus, in this case, me. They had deprived me because they were so strong in their convictions of the opportunity to engage Douglas Wilson, formulate my own beliefs. Well, and And to maybe
0: agree with them in the future, if you could formulate your own beliefs and hear the whole conversation.
1: Totally. And Christopher Hitchens talked about this. You know, I'm a big fan of his. Uh, He's given one of the best speeches on free speech that I've ever heard. And and, in that speech, he he asked the audience, he's like, who would you trust for you to determine what books you can read? to determine for you what movies you can listen to, to determine for you what speakers you can hear. There's not a person in the world with whom I would entrust that responsibility. But censorship presumes that there is, or censorship presumes that I am that person that can determine for everyone else what they can hear and listen to. Um, And it just takes away agency from people. And I think that's unfair. And that's why Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist said, Free speech and it has two sides to it: the right to hear and the right to listen. And he he made that remark after a pro-slavery mob shut down an abolitionist meeting. You know, and he he realized that it wasn't just the abolitionists' arguments that were being censored; it was also the rights of the people who could listen. Those those rights were also implicated and are important, particularly in a democracy, where we talk about we talk across lines of difference to solve our disputes. We use words, not violence. Sigmund Freud once said that civilization was started the day man cast a word instead of a stone. Um, And so I think, you know, it it speaks to this broader conversation that we're having about whether words are violence, but um, you break down that distinction, I think a lot goes out the window.
0: Well, I mean, this this feels like how we are here a little bit how we got to where we are in America, although, right, every, every, America keeps churning and we'll make it through these days until we have our next problem and our next problem, but how polarized we are as a country right now. You know, people, you know, to simplify it, you're watching an MSNBC or you're walk, watching Fox and the two shall not mix, right? Mm-hmm. And Fox people don't want to hear what MMSC, MSNBC wants to say and vice versa, Right. We sort of joked in my household like, oh, can you watch Fox News for half an hour and not scream at the television? Like Mm -hmm. just sit and listen to what they're saying. I I must confess I didn't try it. Um, But maybe that's part of the problem on college campuses. We have a world where you could try it. And in America, we don't try it. Dylan, you were going to chime in.
2: Well, I, I, I just think that that's, you know. As, as Nico said about censorship, and I think that's probably why we're in this the position that we are now in terms of such a divided country is because, you know, I think when we shut down a conversation about anything, no matter how problematic that conversation is, what we're essentially telling everyone else is anyone else who thinks that or has even thought to think that is wrong and we don't value your opinion or worse, we don't value you, right? And I think that all that does is, is brew resentment and a feeling of non-belonging. And I think that's how we end up in situations where, you know, we don't really know how to debate anything. Mm-hmm. We don't know how to talk about anything to the point where even something that arises that should be very easy to quote unquote debate, we don't do it because we don't really know how. We haven't learned those tools over, over the past decade.
0: We are talking right now about free speech. We have our two guests today, Nico Perino, the executive vice president of fire and Dylan white attorney, constitutional law professor and scholar on uh, primarily first amendment issues and beyond. We it's not too late to join the conversation. If you want to um, tell us your thoughts, we would love to hear from you at area code 608-256-2001 extension nine. So, we do have um, less than 10 minutes left. I, I do want to do a quick shout out to the UW of Wisconsin story that is part of our conversation that the two of you have both made some references to. Joe Gao, University of Wisconsin-La Crosse Chancellor, Joe Gao was terminated because loosely uh, he and his wife uh, were in and cons- and consensually were in and consensually created pornographic videos Uh, wanted to sort of get I remember reading this story being like what the heck is going on Uh, and that this wasn't anything new this had been going on for years Um, I don't know if there was something that happened recently in a more recent video that that triggered things or not but wanted to get your your take on this Nico you want to start
1: yeah, I, I can start, although Dylan did an excellent TikTok on this. Yes, I, can recommend I did all see all that. Listeners. It was great. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it kind of speaks to the broad principles that we were discussing earlier. You know, in his role as chancellor, he is a representative for the university, he is a spokesperson for the university. He has to keep the university's reputation front of mind. He is the keeper of that reputation, despite how glowing his reviews had been previously. And by all accounts, he was a fantastic chancellor. And I have to give a shout out to UW lacrosse. I ran track in high school and in college was considering UW lacrosse got one of the best track teams uh, in D3 sports. Right. But so I I think they were well within their rights to fire him as chancellor. Now, of course, when we're talking about tenured faculty members, there needs to be due process. And you also need to look at the kind of public employee speech doctrine when determining whether uh, that he can be fired. And I don't know that as, as I referenced the AAUP statement on extra, extramural speech, his his activities, his hobby, I guess, doing vegan porn, uh, rose to the level of something that is actionable and fireable. Um, he didn't make any connection to the uh, University of wisconsin lacrosse Crosse in, in doing it. Um, and, you know, you can have consensual legal hobbies outside of work. You know, you could see a, a different scenario in a different state Maybe where you have a conservative professor who has a gun hobby on the side, legally owns the guns, goes to shooting range, maybe has a very famous TikTok account where he talks about guns and you could say, well, you know, this is morally reprehensible. Mm -hmm. They should be fired. But it's, you know, the the account isn't associated with his role as a professor, isn't associated uh, with the university. Uh, You know, we got to allow that sort of freedom for people to have lives outside of school so long as they're not putting the imprimatur of the university on top of it.
0: Dylan, your thoughts on this? And I did really f- enjoy your TikTok on this.
1: <laughs> yeah, I so I think that the cynic in me tells me
2: that this was a little bit intentional in terms of when it was brought to their t- attention. Hmm. So to your point, Carousel, yeah, he's been doing it for a long time, but he suddenly made it very public recently. I kind of think, especially given his history of bringing certain speakers on campus, that this was a little bit of a I I have no proof for this. But I think it was a little bit of an intentional um, test of First Amendment on, on, on campuses, specifically with regard mm-hmm. to positions like his. I don't think he has a claim at all, frankly, in terms of the chancellor position. It was an at-will employment, and the contract provision was pretty clear on doing anything that would sort of you know bring disrepute upon the university or upon the board, and he's a public image of the board. Now, that said, if they take action against him in his faculty position to bring back what Nico and I were talking about earlier. uh, I think that That would would be
0: interesting. Really interesting. We have, we have two callers joining us. Let's see if we can fit them in, uh, in the next few minutes. Sally, you had an uh, anecdote to share about free speech.
3: Yes, uh, thank you so much for this conversation. I've personally just been uh, really disturbed by um, the firing of these two um, ch- chancellors after this. I um, thought it was a very political witch hunt, you know, um, free speech notwithstanding. Um But I wanted to share an anecdote about a, a kind of a different issue that happened to me in Madison a couple of years back. Um, I found um, very racist stickers um, on East Dayton Street near a, a historic African-American church, and I... Uh, I was really disturbed by them and I reported it to the police um, uh, and actually sort of coincidentally the next day um, there was a, there's a man who drives around Madison sometimes uh, an actual uh, hater of Jews uh, who drives around with a, um, a car that says like Milwaukee Aryan Brotherhood he has swastikas on his vehicle anyway so I you know these two incidents back to back that I saw it was really disturbing uh, a detective from Madison Police Department called me based on the, the stickers that I uh, had reported, um, and basically told me that, you know, they they their only action they could really take is to report it to an FBI um, like hate you know hate database. Hmm. Um, and I told the, uh, the detective about, um, you know, incidentally about the the vehicle, the car I had seen. And this guy drives around Madison. Um, the detective told me that, you know, that's they can't you know, it's disturbing he, they, he told me that the police are aware of this man, but they can't act on it because, you know, he's within his right to drive around like that. Yeah. Um, and the the uh, detective told that's... me um, if he if he's ever like becoming a, a nuisance in traffic, then I could call and report <laughs> it. Actually, he was. He, people were so angry because of the sign the
1: Ah, were that's interesting. Like,
3: there was people chasing his car. Anyway, um, but, you yeah, know, I'll be it to say that you know the police department couldn't do anything, but I did report it to WRC the sticker, and you guys did a, a piece about it on yeah.
0: News. Thanks and, for doing know, that, that sort of Sally. Speaks, well, I mean, it sort of
3: speaks to the point I, earlier of you know. Um, you I and, and just I have think Sally, louder. Sally, I um,
0: think we're we're near the end of the show, so I want to get Nico and Dylan's take on this. But I think that's exactly it. Sometimes things are said or done that do not feel okay, but it seems like it was the right decision by the police not to see that there was a crime permitted, or is that sort of a, a different area? Uh, Dylan or Nico, your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, it's so in, in terms of it being a different area, um, the the aspect that would be is, you know, I mean, there's there's no tangible evidence likely is what they argued to you that it was the man driving in the truck that put the stickers up. Uh, and I, you know, I tell people all the time, time like a lot of answers that we have to give as lawyers are they are not fun and people don't feel good about them um but you know to what the the officer said likely is as soon as there is you know some sort of a a probable cause if you will for something like a traffic stop and then when they stop them they see in the back seat that there is a box full of those stickers then we have a very different conversation as long as it is you know in open
1: and plain sight then we get into the Fourth Amendment, and then
2: it gets more complicated.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and putting up those stickers on private property is vandalism, which is not protected by free speech <laughs> <age>. No, private <right. laughs> right. property for sure, yeah.
0: So I think our sort of final minute here, uh, what happens next? Where do where do we go from here? How have things changed because of what has happened in the last few months? Do you think we're going to see changes on campuses or that's, you know, pay attention and and – hope hope for the best what happens now dylan well, if, final words oh sorry nick
2: no let's let doing go let's give him the final word. no i I'm, I'm gonna pass this to nico because i think a, a lot of the consequences are about the you know, fears about academic freedom
1: mm. yeah mm. yeah as i mentioned earlier i mean this could go multiple different ways but i will say that we are hearing that fire from people more than we ever have about what solutions for the path forward are um and obviously we're giving them solutions that uh, are consistent with free speech principles, broadly applicable to anyone, you know, no matter who they are or what they believe. Um, but you know, this this interest in solutions might also be going to folks who are calling for more censorship, right? We know what Elise Stefanik's line of questioning was directed yeah. at. So it, it could go many different ways. I think we're just too early to see. But colleges and universities need to do something because the declining confidence in them as institutions and the declining trust could have very detrimental consequences for higher education, if we recognize also that higher education in America is important, some say it's our greatest export, yeah. we need to preserve it and we need to create institutions that people trust across the political spectrum.
0: This has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you both so much for all the work that you do on a daily basis to to be so knowledgeable and experts on this and then joining us today. Uh, it's just been wonderful. Dylan White, attorney, constitutional law professor uh, and scholar. Um, It's been great talking with you, Dylan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Nico Perino, Executive Vice President of FIRE. Thank you, Nico. It's been great.
1: Carousel, it's been fun.
0: And huge thank you to Jade for producing, Jay for engineering, and everyone for putting the show together. We'll be back again next week. Remember, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.
1: District of the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen and supported it. <laughs> ha